Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Authoritative, inspired word of God. That's the title of this week's message. The authoritative, inspired word of God. About a year and a half ago here at New Story, we did a series called Church Chat. Was anybody around for that series? Anybody around? Anyone remember that? You put your hands up if you remember. Yeah, okay. And obviously a little bit of a play on an old SNL skit. If anybody knows Dana Carvey's work with Church Chat, it was a great skit if you don't know it. But anyways, uh, it, was, it was basically what we were doing in that series is we were looking at different words that we as Christians use. And we were, we were basically saying, what, what do these words actually mean? Because sometimes we get into church and people start using different words and it's just what everybody says, but what does that word actually mean? What does that, you know, we're probably going to do another church chat in the future uh, because there's so many words that we could cover, but have you ever done this before where you start to get into the group a little bit and you just start saying things because everyone else is saying them and you're like, I'm not a hundred percent sure I know what this means, but everyone is saying it. Or for those of you who are newer to church, you've noticed that there's a little bit of a lingo and there's a way that people talk and you're kind of, sometimes you feel a little bit out of the loop, so you just shake your head and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And you just keep going along with the conversation. Some of us don't recognize this. We've been in the church for so long. We have our own lingo, our own language, and some of us don't even recognize it. Sometimes we say things and we don't even really know what we're saying. I've definitely been guilty of this on multiple occasions. Or we hear someone say something, we just go, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds really good. And, and one of the churches I went to growing up, there was this one guy that whenever you would say, how are you today? He would say, blessed and highly favored in the name of Jesus. Man, that sounds really, really good. What exactly do you mean? Blessed, highly favored? What, what do all of these things mean? It sounds really good. And of course, there is, there's a meaning to that. But sometimes we just start saying things, oh, that sounds good. And, we, and we've done that with the Bible as well. And I want to talk about three different phrases that we use when we talk about the Bible and what exactly do these things mean and what do they mean in the life of those of us who are saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus or I'm interested in following Jesus. What exactly does this mean? So the, the phrases we're going to walk through are the authoritative inspired word of God. We're going to talk about authority because a lot of people talk about the scriptures as authoritative. We're going to talk about inspiration because we say that the scriptures are inspired. We're going to talk about this phrase, the word of God, because a lot of people say, oh, the, the Bible is God's word. And when we say that, what exactly do we mean? Here, just, just for a moment, don't, don't say anything out loud. But I just want you to think through this. If you're new to church, you don't have to do this exercise. You can just have some free time in your brain. But, but if you've been coming to church for some time and you're a follower of Christ, if somebody came to you and said, what do you mean by the fact that the Bible is authoritative or that the scriptures are authoritative? If somebody asked you that, how would you respond? What, what would you say? Would it be a short answer? Would it be a longer answer? How would you describe that? What, what, would you, what would you say? Or if somebody came to you and said, hey, or asked, what does it mean that, that the Bible is inspired? How would you respond to that? How would you answer? What, what would you say? Or if somebody said, hey, you know, I've noticed that a, a lot of Christians use this phrase, the word of God. What exactly does that mean? How would you respond? What would you say? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad because I, as I was putting together this message, I, I was thinking, what would I say? Like, how would we describe it? What are, what are some helpful ways that could describe what we mean when we say authoritative, inspired, and word of God? 
I just want to walk through each of those three phrases this week because so as we work towards a foundation and an understanding of the Bible so that we have an understanding of what exactly it is that we are saying when we communicate in this way. So the first one I want to talk about is the authority of Scripture. This is the serious one, the authority of Scripture. You, know, you, better, you better respond to authority. You better, you know, this is the, what, do, what do we mean when we say the authority of Scripture? Now, when it comes to the Bible here in the United States of America, there's almost an implied authority that comes with it in many conversations and in many settings. Now, some people would say that that authority is changing or that it's waning or that it looks different than it did years ago. And, and there's probably some accuracy to that, but there's still an implied authority that comes with the Bible in the United States, even for those who aren't affiliated with church. If you think about this, we, we swear officials into office, our government officials, and they put their hand on the Bible. Like there's an implied authority with the Bible. Many would recognize even from different worldviews that the Bible has had some type of influence on, on the society that we, that we are in. So there's an implied authority with the Bible. And the Bible carries with it this, this implied, like there, there's something special about it. There's something valuable about it. Even for people who don't like it, they recognize that it somehow made a contribution. And there's, there's an implied authority that comes with it. There, about 10 years ago, there was this really cool movie called The Book of Eli. Did anybody see this movie? It was a pretty cool movie. Um, yeah, so it's starring Denzel Washington. And he, it's, he's in this post-apocalyptic world, and he's carrying what seems to be the last Bible in existence with him. And he's protecting this thing at all costs. Spoiler alert, it turns out that Denzel's blind in the movie, but he's still like really good at fighting people and taking people out. It's a really cool movie. And uh, so he's like trying to carry this Bible. He's trying to get it the last printing press, either to preserve it or to distribute it. I can't really remember, but, but he's, he's trying to get to the last printing press. And there's this one character in the movie who's played by Gary Oldman. And he's like the villain in the movie. And he really wants to get this Bible because he has, he has a, a group of people, this little town that he oversees that he has authority over. And he's not a very good leader. He uses his authority for the wrong reasons. And, and he wants to get this Bible because in this movie, there's this implied authority with the Bible that even if he can get it and he misuses it in some way, it's still going to give him some type of authority over other people. And that's what we have to be careful with when we're thinking through the authority of Scripture is that this concept can be used for, for good, as it's intended to be, but can also in the wrong hands and in the wrong way be used for harm if not used properly. And that movie so beautifully demonstrates the, the, the implied authority of Scripture that can be twisted if placed in the wrong hands. And so we want to make sure that we move towards a clear understanding of what exactly are we talking about. So when we talk about different concepts that are like theological concepts or doctrines or beliefs within the church, it's really helpful to look at a, a, a couple different things. The first thing to look at is, well, what does the Bible say about this idea? What do the authors of the Bible say about this idea? And secondly, a really helpful thing to look at is, what does church tradition say about this idea? For the past 2,000 years, what has the church said and believed about this concept or idea? I know, I know we're 21st century Protestants and we don't love, you know, we don't love the word tradition very much. We, know we, we were born, as, we are the people of the protest, the 1500s. We are the protesters. We don't need tradition. But, but tradition is actually very valuable and it's something that we can lean on and can be helpful for us as the church. 
And we really need to look at what the scriptures say about authority. And we need to look at church tradition when we are discussing this concept on the authority of scripture. And what's interesting is when we come to this concept of the authority of scripture is that this is not necessarily a word that the writers of the Bible frequently use to describe the Bible, but the authors of the Bible do frequently use the word authority to describe Jesus. Look at this in Luke chapter 4. And he came down to Capernaum, that is Jesus, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Jesus came teaching with authority. Let me give you a few rapid-fire examples here. Mark 1 says that Jesus cast out demons with his authority. Uh, the next passage, Mark chapter 2 says that Jesus forgives sin with his authority. And then in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gave authority to his disciples to heal others and forgive sins. And then finally, in Matthew 28, after Jesus' resurrection, before he ascends into heaven, he says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's just a small sampling of examples. But over and over again, the gospel writers attest to this reality that Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is the one that we as the church follow. He is the one that, in a sense, we submit to as we seek to follow him. Jesus is the one who has authority over all things. And then Paul affirms this idea in Colossians chapter 2 when he says this, For in him all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over rule, over all rule and authority. The scriptures constantly describe Jesus as the one who has authority over all. So that's what the scriptures say about authority. Jesus is over all things. He is through all things. Jesus is over all. Well, what does church tradition have to say about the authority of scripture? And this is where it gets really kind of compelling to look at. When we go back to the fourth century, when, when the Bible was put together, they, a group of people was looking at this collection of 66 books, and they put them together. They, they saw these books as books that were functioning as authoritative within the church. Dr. Megan Good describes it this way in her book, Unwrapping the Bible. She says, but the truth is that early Christians involved in the process of canonization, and that's another word that we sometimes use in church. Thankfully, it's become a more popular word due to the Star Wars and Marvel universes because people now say, is that, is that content canon? Is that, is that canonized content? Is the, is the content that Sony brought into Disney, is that now canon? We, we use this word more now. So this canonization means these are the books that we are intended to have to bring together the story that God is telling. So she said, it is true that early Christians involved in the process of canonization canonization didn't see themselves as choosing an authoritative set of books. Rather, they simply saw themselves as recognizing which books were already functioning authoritatively in actual communities of real Christians. This should actually bring some comfort to us because it wasn't a random group of people going, oh, we like this one and that one's authoritative and that one looks good, we like that one. No, what they were doing was looking at the first 400 years of church history and they said, oh, these books here, they have functioned as authoritative within the church. Therefore, they are valuable as the church. God must have given these to us. So we are going to compile them together into one book now that we have as the Bible. 
So we could say that based off of what the scriptures say and based off of church tradition, that we view the Bible as authoritative because it speaks of the one who has authority, Jesus, and we view the Bible as authoritative because throughout church history, the church has affirmed it as the book that is authoritative within the church. We view it as authoritative because it speaks to the one who has authority, Jesus, and we view it as authoritative because throughout church history, the church has viewed this book as authoritative within the church. If you want a short summary, a definition of the authority of Scripture, I took this from N.T. Wright, as I do a lot of things, New Testament scholar. He said this, authority of Scripture is shorthand for God's authority exercised through Scripture. Write that down. That's a good definition. Authority of Scripture is shorthand for God's authority exercised through Scripture because we see in the story of Scripture, God is revealing the story of creation and fallen creation and new creation. And in the new creation, he is the king. He's running his Christocracy over all things as we talked about the past two weeks. And we're seeing his authority revealed through Scripture. That's what we mean when we're talking about the authority of Scripture. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one than I do the other two because this is the one that maybe gets the most complicated when talking about it. Because when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we do have to recognize that in these 66 books that are compiled into one book, the Old and New Testament, this one book that is telling the same story of creation, fallen creation, and new creation, there are a few things that we have to recognize or else the authority thing can get really uh, confusing and a little bit, what's going on here? And the first thing we have to recognize is that there are different genres within the Scripture, There are different genres. There are are books that are more narrative. There are the epistles, which are more instructive. Those are, you know, Paul's letters and Peter's letters are a little more instructive. There are, there's poetic literature. There's prophetic literature. We have to look to read the Bible literarily. There's literary genres within the scripture. And, And if we just view everything as just straight authoritative, we might miss out on the literary genre that we are reading. Let me give you a very extreme example. The Psalms are mostly prayer and and metaphorical and poetry, poetry literature. And Psalm 98 says this, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. We know that rivers do not have hands like humans that can clap. And we know that mountains do not have mouths and voices that sing for joy. We don't want to read that literally, it's literarily, it's a, it's a picture that the psalmist is giving, this beautiful picture of the creation, praising and attesting to who God is. But if we just read that literally, we, we're going to misread it. The psalmist is not tra- trying to talk about hydrology or biology or anything like that. And this goes back to two weeks ago when we talked about Genesis 1 and 2, where the author is more so trying to demonstrate the story that God is telling and how God desires to rest in his creation. It's not a story about, well, let's talk about how old the earth is. That's not what it's about. It's about God being the king over all creation and resting and dwelling within his creation. And then it unravels and reveals the story of God constantly drawing close to his creation throughout the scriptures and wanting to live with his creation. So we have to consider the genres that we're reading when we're looking at the scripture. Second thing, when it comes to the authority of Scripture, we must consider the context from old to new. 
The context from old to new. We believe that the Old Testament is just as much as inspired as the New Testament, that the Old Testament testifies and points to Jesus, and there's many great lessons within it. In fact, we are doing a series on the prophet Elijah next month in the Old Testament. We don't run away from it. The Old Testament is important for us to look at. But when, it, when we get to a moment when it appears as if the New Testament might be saying something that, it, that is new or a little bit different, we go as Christians with the New Testament because Jesus came to fulfill the law and Jesus brought clarity to some things that there was maybe a little bit of confusion about. Let me give you some examples of this because some people would say, oh, you know, I, I don't, you know, those, those New Testament, those people who just talk about the New Testament, they're, they're just trying to talk about grace and they aren't as serious. And they don't want to talk about the real stuff and they don't want to talk about the hard stuff in the Old Testament. That is a, a gross mischaracterization. And I'm sure there's some people who do that, but that's actually just not wanting to talk about interpreting the text, okay? In the New Testament, Jesus actually raises the standard. So for those who say, oh, you're just trying to cut corners because you don't want to talk about, no, Jesus actually raises raises the standard of who we are supposed to be as human beings in the New Testament. Let me show you this. Exodus 20, 13, part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. That's a really good commandment. Don't murder people. That's, that's, just, a, that's just a good baseline idea. Don't murder someone. It's a good idea. Go watch John Wick, but don't do it yourself, okay? You're going to have a lot of problems. But then look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You heard it was said to the ancient people, you shall not murder. And anyone who commits murder shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Anyone who uses foul and abusive language will be liable to the law court. And anyone who says you fool will be liable to the fires of Gehenna, which is hell. So Jesus says, Jesus says, um, yeah, you heard that whole thing about not murdering. That's important. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says, you shouldn't even allow anger to exist within your heart for another person. Don't even allow anger to build up. Jesus takes it from just outward actions to a heart issue. And so we as, we as those who seek to follow Jesus, if you're here and you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, we have to work to fight against anger that builds up within our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts and our minds so that we are not driven by anger. Let me give you another example. Exodus 20, 14. This is another really good one. You shall not commit adultery. This is just really good advice. This is something good to consider. Do not commit adultery. It will, it will, it will create some problems um, if you commit adultery. Now, if you're here this morning and you found yourself in a space like that before, know that there is forgiveness and restoration available in Jesus Christ. But I've talked to people who've been through this before, and for those who have been through this, they will tell you, this does not make your life easier if you commit adultery. It does not make your life better. Do not commit adultery. It's a good commandment. But Jesus takes this one a step further. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5. You heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who gazes at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says, it's not just about the action because there were people who'd have tried to say, oh, you know, I did this and did that, but I didn't quite do the action. You know, I just, you know, I did that. But Jesus said, hey, you should cease to even have lustful thoughts in your heart and mind. And not saying that we're always going to get this perfect all the time, but he's saying strive to have such a perspective that you don't view other human beings as objects, but you view them as humans. You view them as people with dignity who carry the image of God. Jesus takes it a step further. 
And this happens over and over again in the New Testament. Acts chapter 10, when Peter visits Cornelius and realizes, oh, the gospel, this kingdom movement, it's not, it's not just for Israel, it's for all people. This is, this is a movement that's meant for all people. It's not just like in the old where they just thought it was one people and they were missing out on what God had for them because God actually told them to be a light and a hope to other people, but they were missing out on that. Peter sees, oh, wow, this new movement is for all people. In the New Testament, we even see some different things like the leadership structures change a little bit because in the old, it was like Moses went up to the mountain, he heard from God, then he came down for all the people and he tried to carry all the leadership and even his father Jethro was like, hey Moses, this is a bad idea, you shouldn't do this all by yourself. But Moses was like this one voice and then they had the king and the prophet, so it was a couple voices in Israel's history, but then Jesus shows up and then the Holy Spirit is sent and Paul says, hey, actually, you're a body and everybody's voice matters. And there's not one person who hears from God and everybody else, you know, just listens to that person. No, we actually all can hear from God and we actually all bring value to the body of Christ. Amen? So, so when I see sometimes these structures where it's like, and we fought against this at New Story and we continue to fight against this. I'm, it's not just me. We have a vision board, a pastoral care board. We have ministry team leaders. We have a story team. We, we try to say, hey, everybody here can bring something to the table. Everybody here who is following God can hear from God and can make a contribution. And it's not just about, oh, there's one man who brings, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. There's a new structure that's in place and you bring value to the table. We all bring value to the table as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and are a part of the body of Christ. Christ. So our structure, our mission, our, our, how we build ourselves up at the church should be the new model where we all contribute, where we all grow together, where we all have something to say and we listen to one another. There's just a couple things with the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture is God's shorthand, is the shorthand for God's authority exercised through scripture. And when it seems as if something might be a little bit different from old and new, we say, hey, we're going to go with the new because Jesus is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God. And so we are going to go with what Jesus brought as he brought fulfillment to the law. That's what we'll go with. But we still deeply value the old. And we're going to talk about that in this next point as well, which is the Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspired. This is another thing that we, that we say as, as Christians. We say, oh, the Bible, the Bible's inspired. We sometimes even add the second one. We say the Bible is the inspired word of God. And the, the Bible, we do believe it to be inspired. Now, there are some who their theory is that when the Bible was being inspired, when it was being written, the theory is that the, the authors almost lost consciousness and they were in kind of this days like, and God was just writing for them. I don't really subscribe to that view. I think that we see too much of the author's personalities bursting forth, specifically Paul in some of his letters. If you read Paul closely, Paul was a bit of a firecracker, guys. Paul, Paul, Paul had some very, there's some times where his personality pops through a little bit. God still inspired it. It's still what God intended. But as far as I can tell, whenever God decides to move in the world, it's a coming together of creator and creation. Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. And when, and when God chose to inspire these scriptures, it was a movement where he was inspiring and moving through the authors through the power of his Holy Spirit. But we do still see some stuff from the authors as God is using them and working and moving through them. 
This concept of the Bible being inspired comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Some of your translations might say, all scripture is God-breathed. That's a good way of describing the inspiration of scripture. All scripture is inspired. It's from God, and it's profitable for correction and training, and it's helpful. Now, when Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, he was most likely referencing the Old Testament scriptures because that's what he would have had in writing. He may have seen some of the gospels in circulation or some of the other letters, but most likely he was referring to the Old Testament scriptures and saying, do not ignore these. They are valuable. They're profitable for reproof and training and building up. And a, and a question that I've heard recently, some people will say, okay, well, did Paul know that what he was writing was inspired? And that's a little bit of a question where there's a lot of speculation. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But here's why we believe the Old Testament is inspired. We believe the Old Testament is inspired because Paul said it was, and Jesus also talked about it as if it was. He said, hey, the law and the prophets, they talk about me. But we believe the New Testament is inspired because just as with the authority of scripture, they testify to Jesus the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, so we believe they're inspired. We believe that they are inspired because throughout church tradition and church history, the church has affirmed the New Testament writings that we have today as inspired. And we view the New Testament as inspired because there is a hint in the scriptures that the New Testament authors possibly did and most likely did view one another's writings as inspired. Peter says this in his letter in 2 Peter. He said, Our beloved brother Paul has written to you about all this according to the wisdom that has been given to him, speaking about these things as he has done in his letter. There are some things in which they are difficult to understand. Untaught and unstable people twist the words for their own destruction as they do, listen to this, as they do with the other scriptures. Scriptures was the shorthand, the term for the Old Testament law and all those things. So Peter here takes the letters of Paul and equates them to and wraps them in and bundles them in with the other scriptures. They are inspired is what he's saying here. So we view that the scriptures as inspired because they speak of Jesus, because the church has viewed them as inspired, and because it seems that the other New Testament authors viewed one another's writings as inspired. So that's why we use this language inspired when talking about the scriptures. Now, as those who follow Christ, as those within the church, we do believe that the Bible is the only inspired book from God. That's what we believe. There are other faiths and traditions, and, and they view some other books as inspired, and, and we, we just don't land in the same place as them. We believe that the Bible is the only inspired book. And I've also heard other people say things before. They've tried to refer to uh, different documents throughout history as divinely inspired, you know, different like government documents and things like that. And I hear that stuff. I'm like, that's just really, really strange. Like, we, I don't know why we would loop that in with the scriptures. We believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. And, and that's, that's what Christians have held to for our, our whole history as is, is, is those who follow Christ. So if you want to define the inspiration of scripture, this is going to be my last time in this message not forever, for certain. This is going to be my last time in this message. I'm going to quote N.T. Wright again, because this is a great quote. 
Here's how he defines inspiration. He said, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. So this is a step of faith. It is a step of saying, I'm going to believe this, but we believe that these books are the books that God intended his church and intended his people to have that all tell the one story. They were led by the spirit to put this and write this down. And they were written to certain people. That's why we have to look at context. But now today as a church, we can use them for us through interpretation and growing closer to Christ. We could, we could say it this way, that God gave us the spirit-inspired scriptures to guide us into a spirit-filled life. God gave us the spirit-inspired scriptures that are living and speaking and active to lead us into a spirit-filled life. When we open up the scriptures and we engage the scriptures individually and together at church or in our small group or wherever you are, when we engage the scriptures, we believe that there's an interaction that's happening there between us and God, the Holy Spirit, that God is moving and living and breathing through the scriptures and that we connect with him in that space. And the spirit-inspired scriptures will lead us into and guide us into a spirit-filled life as we become people of new creation. And lastly, the Bible is God's word. The word of God. You know, the word of the Lord say unto you, saith unto you. This is the serious one. The Bible is God's word. You know, this is one that, this is the one when people get mad they see something, that's against the word. I can't believe that. That's against the word. People are moving. This is the one that the Christians start using when they get upset. That's not what the word says. This one can be a little bit confusing grammatically as well, because as far as I'm concerned, this book has a lot of words in it, not just one. But, you know, there, there are a lot of words in it. But I'm just kidding. But we get to the Bible is God's word. What exactly do we mean when we say that? Now, the psalmist says in the Psalms, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, so the psalmist seems to be using this language. If you look at Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, the, the psalmist uses this phrase, the word, in it over and over again, because Psalm 119 is about how the psalmist values the, the scriptures, values the Old, Old Testament covenant and all those things within the law. It's a a beautiful chapter. You should read it sometime, Psalm 119. And so this is a word that the psalmist uses to refer to the scriptures. And that's, that's why we do this, but I actually think that there's a deeper meaning here as well. I think that there's something even deeper that we can see as we refer to the Bible as the word of God. And I want to take us to Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Keep that passage up there for just a moment. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. Now, many folks will say that this, this passage is talking about the Bible. And it very well could be. But I actually think that this passage is talking about Jesus. Because the entirety of the book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus. That's what the entire book's about. 
And it looks as if this is describing characteristics of Jesus. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. This is what Jesus says. Jesus is living and active as the resurrected king. What he has to say is sharper than any sword. It pierces to our hearts. And, and, it begin, and he speaks to us in such a deep and real way as he calls us into a new life, as he rescues us and loves us and saves us. What Jesus as the word of God has to say to us is so truly powerful. I believe that the author of Hebrews is bringing this alive. And if you go look at verse 13, throw that up on the screen, he continues in thought and says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. So he's talking about the word and then he says his he doesn't say the word and he says the book. He says his sight. I believe he's referencing Jesus. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. So, so he's referencing Jesus. And this would not have been out of the ordinary in the New Testament time because John 1.1 1, 1 refers to Jesus as the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us in reference to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the logos. He's the very speech of God. And then first John 1 1 says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Over and over and over again, the New Testament uses this phrase, the word, to talk about Jesus. The Old Testament uses this phrase, the word, to testify to who Jesus is because Jesus is the speech of God. When God speaks, it looks like Jesus. When God acts and moves in his creation, it looks like Jesus. When God does whatever God wants, it looks like Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that he's the exact representation of God. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. God looks like Jesus. And what's really cool, Colossians 1 says that all things are created through him and for him. And Jesus is the word of God. And Genesis 1 says that he spoke creation, in, the father spoke creation to existence. It is through Christ that creation was brought into existence as the speech and as the word of God. Jesus is the very word of God. So we could say it this way, the words of the Bible testify to the word of God. The words of the Bible, as we open it and look at it, they testify to the one who is the very word of God. So you know I have to do this one more time if you've been following us at New Story Church for quite some time. If you've been here this past year, this is my third time doing it this year, I think it's going to be my last. But I have to bring out my cross glasses one more time. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody bought me an orange pair recently that says, I love wings on them. They said, you should start collecting these. I said, okay, I guess I can start collecting funny glasses. But this must be the lens through which we view and read the Bible. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine this past week named Bob Tice, who's been pastoring in the city of Buffalo for a little over 30 years now. And he said, he was talking about the differences between pastoring in the city versus the suburbs. And he's saying, Scott, we have to recognize that every one of us, when we come to the Bible, we have a lens through which we look at it through. And then he said, success comes when you recognize what your lens is that you bring based off of your upbringing, your socioeconomic status, your race, your background. Uh, some of you, you know, you're new to church. Some of you have been in church forever. Whatever it is you bring, there's something you bring with it. And there's a lens through which we look at the scriptures. And he said, success comes when you recognize what is my lens? What is my bias? And how can I start to interpret with the rest of the body of Christ who sometimes might, you know, be at a different spot? And then ultimately, how do we come together as the body of Christ and start to read the Bible through the lens of the cross? 
How do we start to see every single page, every single chapter, every single movement that is happening is pointing to new creation or is a work of new creation that happened in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. John 5, 39, Jesus said, these the scriptures testify of me. He says that in Luke 24, it's all about Jesus. The words of God testify to the very word of God. The authority of scripture, we believe it has authority because it testifies to the one who has authority. We believe they are inspired because they speak of the one who is the inspiration of all life, Jesus himself. We believe that the scripture is the word of God because it testifies to the word of God. So my prayer and my desire for us as a church is that when we start opening the scriptures that we would view it through the lens of the cross, that we would view it through the lens of God's sacrifice and love and mercy and grace and care and desire to restore and renew every single one of us. Amen? This is the lens through which we must continue to seek to read and look at the scriptures. So to summarize it all up as we've been putting it all together the past few weeks, the Bible is the grand story of creation, fallen creation, and new creation that is ultimately pointing to Jesus. It's this beautiful story of creation and fallen creation, new creation that is ultimately pointing to Jesus. And the question we all must ask ourselves is that yes, we see that it's authoritative and inspired and it's the word of God and it's valuable. And it's, do we want, do you want to join in the story? Do you want to live in the story of new creation that Christ is inviting you into? That he loves you so much that he gave his life for you so that you could have new life. And he's inviting every single one of us to not only become new in him, but then become a part of his movement in the world to write a story of new life and new creation that looks like Jesus, that sounds like Jesus, that acts like Jesus, that serves others like Jesus, that sacrifices like Jesus. Even when it's not easy, even when it's difficult, we must become the people as we become people of the story who are made new in Christ and look like Christ because ultimately it's all about him. The question is, do you find the story of Jesus compelling enough to give your life to it? Do you find the story in the life and the ministry of Jesus compelling enough to give your life to him? What is it that you're holding on to that's saying, I'd rather live in my own little story over here? Or I want a little bit of that story, but what is holding you back from experiencing the full and abundant life that he has for you? I can't think of a more beautiful story than a savior who left the comforts of being with his father to come and to give his life and to rescue us from the sin that was keeping us all in bondage. And then in his resurrection says, you can be resurrected as well. You can have new and eternal life as well. And in that become more and more like Christ and become who it is that he intended you and created you to be. I can't think of a more beautiful and compelling story than that one. So my, my ask for you today is that you would not just open your Bible and start seeing your place in the story, but today, but today you would take a step forward in giving your life to King Jesus and becoming a part of his new creation story and doing and acting and looking like Jesus. Let's pray together.